Picture this, if you will. You're a hospitalist at a community hospital, and you receive a call from the nurse in the PCU. A 72-year-old male with COPD who was admitted for pneumonia last night is having increasingly labored breathing despite maximal medical therapy, and you're concerned he will soon go into respiratory failure. You inform the patient that you think it will be safest to intubate him, as you don't think he can sustain this sort of respiratory effort for long. The patient nods in understanding, and you page the anesthesiologist on call. He's at a code blue somewhere else in the hospital, but the patient has an oxygen saturation of 88% on non-rebreather oxygen, so you reassure him that he still has time. You leave the PCU, but have only been gone for five minutes before you hear a rapid response called to your patient's room. You run back upstairs and find the patient gasping for breath, cyanotic, with an oxygen saturation of 65%. As you page the anesthesiologist again, you wonder, how did your patient decompensate so quickly? And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from respiratory physiology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this brick, you'll be able to 1. Define the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve. 2. Explain the sigmoid shape of the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve. 3. Explain how changes in pH, partial pressure of carbon dioxide, temperature, and 2,3-DPG shift the curve and affect the affinity of oxygen to hemoglobin. And 4. Describe the role of myoglobin in oxygen storage and release to the muscles. Part 1. What is the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve? When life on Earth developed the ability to utilize oxygen for metabolic reactions, it prompted an explosion of aerobic organisms that can now harness its reactive potential to power metabolically demanding cellular activity. But as multicellular life grew more complex, oxygen-consuming organisms ran into a different problem. While all tissues are water-based, oxygen simply isn't very water-soluble. And if an organism is more than two cell layers thick, you run into a problem. How do you get enough oxygen to dissolve in the aqueous medium of the tissue so that it can travel to those inner layers of cells? Some organisms, like insects, developed a capillary-like network of air passages in the body connected to multiple openings at the surface. But this approach can't provide enough oxygen for larger or more metabolically active organisms. A special aqueous reservoir of oxygen was needed to allow more oxygen to remain dissolved in the tissues. Both invertebrates and vertebrates developed proteins akin to carrier molecules for other nonpolar solutes, each incorporating key oxidizable metals into their structure to bind oxygen. Invertebrates used copper to build the giant blue hemocyanin molecule, secreted to float freely in the interstitial fluid. Vertebrates used iron to build the more efficient red hemoglobin molecule, as well as an entire lineage of highly specialized red blood cells to carry them through the circulatory system. The hemoglobin molecule is a tetramer, which is four globular proteins, each with an iron-containing porphyrin ring known as heme in its center. Oxygen binds reversibly to the iron molecule at the center of each heme unit, meaning that each hemoglobin molecule can carry up to four oxygen molecules. And as the molecule binds more oxygen molecules, its color shifts from purplish-blue to bright red. It's noticeable enough to where venous blood appears visibly darker than arterial blood, and a patient who's severely hypoxemic will appear to have cyanosis. 
The bound form is called oxyhemoglobin. And in a group of hemoglobin molecules, the percentage of oxygen binding sites occupied by an oxygen molecule is known as the oxygen saturation. And as you might guess, the oxygen saturation of hemoglobin increases as the amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma increases. But while measuring the dissolved oxygen, or partial pressure of oxygen, requires a sophisticated blood gas analysis machine, we can measure the oxygen saturation quickly and non-invasively through the skin by taking advantage of the color-changing nature of hemoglobin that I just mentioned. By attaching a red light emitter to the finger, it's possible to quantify the oxygen saturation since, unlike deoxyhemoglobin, the bright red oxyhemoglobin reflects red light. Quick knowledge check before we move on. What does it mean when blood has a high oxygen saturation? It means that a higher percentage of hemoglobin's oxygen binding sites are occupied by oxygen molecules. Now, I mentioned that as the amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma increases, so too does the oxygen saturation of hemoglobin. But it's not a simple linear relationship. The complex relationship between the partial pressure of oxygen and the oxygen saturation is quantified by the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve. The curve is a function of the biochemistry of the hemoglobin molecule itself, and it describes why hemoglobin so effectively serves the needs of the circulatory system. Part 2. What explains the shape of the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve? As vertebrates, we demand a lot from our oxygen-carrying molecules. Hemoglobin must bind oxygen tightly enough so that it doesn't dissociate while being transported through larger blood vessels, but not so tightly that oxygen can't be released into the tissues. To solve this problem, hemoglobin adopts a tetrameric structure of two alpha and two beta units so that when oxygen binds to one unit, the conformation of the globin protein changes and affects the other units, a property known as cooperativity. For each oxygen molecule that's bound, the shape of the other globin molecules in the tetramer change to increase the affinity for other oxygen molecules to bind to the remaining sites. The oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve models this relationship, with the partial pressure of oxygen as the independent variable on the x-axis and the oxygen saturation of hemoglobin as the dependent variable on the y-axis. Initially, an increase in the amount of dissolved oxygen, or PO2, leads to a fairly small increase in the oxygen saturation of hemoglobin. But once a few oxygen molecules are bound, hemoglobin undergoes the conformation change that causes it to bind more avidly to other oxygen molecules. So as the PO2 increases linearly from 0 to 10 to 20 millimeters mercury, the oxygen saturation increases slowly at first, then faster and faster like an exponential curve. In this range, the slope of the curve starts off slow and gradually increases. But at the other end of the curve, you see that, despite hemoglobin's property of cooperative binding, at a certain point, you simply run out of binding sites for oxygen. You can't have greater than 100% oxygen saturation. By the time you've reached a PO2 of 50 millimeters mercury, you're already at 85% oxygen saturation. And by 80 millimeters mercury, you're at 95% oxygen saturation after which point you've essentially reached a plateau where the oxygen saturation asymptotically approaches 100%. Over 50 millimeters mercury, the slope of the curve gradually decreases. The partial pressure of the oxygen in the arteries is normally within this plateau range, 
where oxygen binds to hemoglobin avidly and almost completely saturates all hemoglobin molecules. Between 20 to 50 millimeters mercury, the PO2 of the tissues, the relationship between the PO2 and oxygen saturation is more or less linear. And because the first part of the curve was spent gradually increasing the slope, the part between 20 to 50 millimeters mercury is also the steepest part of the curve before the slope levels out around 50 millimeters mercury. And I can hear you saying, okay, Arjun, why do we care so much about the slope? If you say the word slope one more time, I'm literally going to lose my mind. Well, take a chill pill, because here's why. When the slope is steepest, even a small change in the PO2 will result in a large change in the amount of oxygen bound to hemoglobin. Physiologically, what this means is that the hemoglobin molecule is optimized to unload oxygen most efficiently within the range of the PO2 normally found in the tissues. It's actually pretty brilliant. So, from left to right, the oxygen saturation of hemoglobin increases slowly at first, then faster and faster as the PO2 increases from 0 to 20 millimeters mercury and maintains its most rapid rate of increase between 20 and 50 millimeters mercury. At around 50 millimeters mercury, the oxygen saturation starts to increase more slowly until it effectively plateaus at around 80 millimeters mercury, approaching 100% saturation asymptotically. The overall shape of the curve is referred to as sigmoidal, or S-shaped. And a key reference point for the curve is the P50, the PO2 at which 50% of hemoglobin is saturated. This normally occurs at a PO2 of around 27 millimeters mercury, but as we'll discuss, several factors cause shifts in the curve, both physiologically and pathologically. Quick knowledge check. What physical property of hemoglobin is responsible for the sigmoidal shape of the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve? Hemoglobin is a tetramer with the property of cooperative binding. The binding of one oxygen molecule causes the other sites to bind more avidly leading to early exponential increases in saturation before the eventual plateau as the saturation approaches 100%. Part 3. What factors affect oxygen binding? The innately sigmoidal shape of the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve permits efficient offloading of oxygen when hemoglobin enters the relatively oxygen-poor tissues. But a number of factors associated with increased metabolic activity can further decrease hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen by changing its shape to what's known as the taut form and enabling the release of oxygen into the tissues that need it the most. Carbon dioxide, and to an even greater extent lactic acid, decreases the pH of tissues, and the resulting hydrogen ions bind to hemoglobin to decrease its affinity for oxygen. Increased temperature does the same. But perhaps the least intuitive factor that leads to increased oxygen dissociation is the allosteric binding of the molecule 2,3-diphosphoglycerate, or 2,3-DPG. It's an isomer of the glycolysis intermediate, 1,3-DPG, and when glycolysis is happening faster than cellular respiration can clear its end products, like when there's insufficient oxygen, more of this glycolytic intermediate is converted to 2,3-DPG which acts like a signaling molecule to the red blood cells to deposit more oxygen. What's unique about this pathway is that, unlike pH and temperature, which change moment to moment, the accumulation of 2,3-DPG takes a little longer and is better suited to changing hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen in cases of chronic tissue ischemia. Locally, this could be in cases of tissue ischemia like from peripheral vascular disease, but globally, 
It's one of the adaptations that helps people survive at high altitudes when the oxygen content of inspired air is lower. These factors stretch out the sigmoid shape of the dissociation curve to the right, or to use the standard term, they increase the P50. In acidemic tissues, the oxygen saturation might drop to 50% as high as a PO2 of 40 millimeters mercury instead of 27. Conversely, increased pH, low temperatures, and low concentrations of 2,3-DPG all compress the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve to the left, effectively increasing hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen. In the lungs, the cooling effect of ambient air and the offloading of carbon dioxide create the perfect environment for oxygen retention to be maximized. Of note, hemoglobin F, which is the form of hemoglobin most prevalent in the fetus, holds on to oxygen more avidly than does adult hemoglobin, so the curve appears leftward shifted when compared to adult hemoglobin. That way, the blood-to-blood -blood gas exchange of the placenta favors the fetal hemoglobin extracting the maximal oxygen from the mother's blood whose adult hemoglobin doesn't hold on to oxygen as tightly. I've been saying it for years. A fetus isn't unlike an internal parasite. Finally, carbon monoxide, which is released during combustion and concentrates in enclosed spaces, also alters the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve by shifting it to the left. But unlike 2,3-DPG, it binds competitively to the oxygen-binding site on hemoglobin, and it does so with much greater affinity than oxygen does. It also exaggerates the phenomenon of cooperativity, such that oxygen has a difficult time unbinding and reaching the tissues when it's supposed to, resulting in tissue ischemia despite oxygen saturations that may otherwise be adequate to sustain life. Pop quiz before we move on. Name two factors that result in a rightward shift of the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve, and two that result in a leftward shift. Lower pH higher temperature, and 2,3-DPG all decrease affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen and shift the curve to the right. Carbon monoxide and the fetal globin subunit shift the curve to the left. Part 4. How does oxygen bind to myoglobin? Hemoglobin is well-suited to the function of holding onto oxygen it picks up in the lungs and offloading it to the tissues that need it the most. But it's not the only heme-containing molecule in the human body. Skeletal and cardiac muscle cells are equipped with a cousin protein of hemoglobin, called myoglobin. And like hemoglobin, it binds oxygen to an iron residue incorporated into a heme protein. But there's a couple of important differences. First, the globular protein holding onto the heme protein is distinct from the alpha and beta globulins that make up hemoglobin, one that promotes oxygen binding much more avidly than hemoglobin does. And second, while hemoglobin exists as a tetramer, whose units interact to bind oxygen cooperatively, myoglobin exists as a monomer. The end result is that myoglobin's oxygen desaturation curve looks much different from that of hemoglobin. Since the cooperative binding of the hemoglobin tetramer isn't present in the myoglobin monomer, myoglobin's curve is hyperbolic rather than sigmoidal. Abruptly increasing as the PO2 increases, and slowing asymptotically as it approaches 100% oxygen saturation. And as it turns out, this serves its function just fine. You see, hemoglobin is intended to be a transporter, and the ability to offload oxygen when necessary is just as important as its ability to bind oxygen when it's available. Its sigmoidal curve ensures that maximal oxygen release occurs 
within the correct range of normal tissue oxygen levels. Myoglobin, on the other hand, simply needs to serve as a pure oxygen reservoir, binding avidly and storing all the oxygen it can. When the muscles aren't particularly active, the oxygen supply from the blood is more than sufficient for its needs. But periods of aerobic exertion can rapidly consume the oxygen that would normally be supplied by the blood. Myoglobin binds oxygen so strongly that it won't let go unless the PO2 falls to critical levels, below 10 millimeters mercury. But if they do, then myoglobin will rapidly unload the reservoir of oxygen, allowing continued aerobic activity. And that's a wrap. Let's check in to see what you've learned. And if you cooperate, maybe we can bind that knowledge to your brains a bit more tightly. First, can you explain the physical property of hemoglobin that's responsible for the sigmoidal shape of the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve? Hemoglobin is a tetramer whose units bind cooperatively. If one unit binds oxygen, the rest bind oxygen more strongly. Second, can you explain why it's important for the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve to be sigmoidal by contrasting it with myoglobin? A sigmoidal dissociation curve has its steepest slope in the middle of the curve. In the case of hemoglobin, the slope is steepest in the PO2 range of the tissues, meaning that this is the point at which the greatest quantity of oxygen is released from the hemoglobin molecule. Myoglobin, on the other hand, has a simple hyperbolic dissociation curve. Its slope is steepest at the very beginning and decreases as the saturation approaches 100%. This allows myoglobin to be a very good oxygen reservoir, but ensures that it will only maximally offload oxygen when it's been critically depleted. Third, can you explain how increased metabolic activity in the tissues alters the amount of oxygen they receive from hemoglobin? Increased metabolic activity decreases the pH through the generation of carbon dioxide and lactate, and increases the temperature locally. It also results in the generation of 2,3-DPG, especially when there's insufficient oxygen. These factors all have the ability to shift the hemoglobin molecule from its relaxed conformation to its taut conformation, decreasing its affinity for oxygen, which results in a greater amount of oxygen being released into the tissues. Mathematically, the oxygen-hemoglobin dissociation curve will appear shifted to the right with an increased P50. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the intro. A patient with COPD and pneumonia abruptly desaturates from 88 to 65% within five minutes while you're waiting for the anesthesiologist to arrive. How did your patient decompensate so quickly? The anesthesiologist fortunately arrives just in time and stabilizes the patient using bag mask ventilation before intubating the patient. I don't know what happened, you exclaim. The patient had COPD and an oxygen saturation of 88%. But you stop, because you already know what happened. By convention, an oxygen saturation between 88 and 92% is considered acceptable in patients with COPD, as their damaged lungs and respiratory drive have grown used to surviving on less oxygen. But hemoglobin evolved long before the advent of tobacco smoke, and it's governed by its own ancient molecular structure, rather than by the conventions of the medical community. 
I should have asked you to come sooner, you admit. I saw he was starting to fatigue, and I should have anticipated that around 85%, any small change in blood oxygenation would cause the saturation to plummet. The anesthesiologist nods understandingly, and you're grateful that he happened to arrive just in the nick of time. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full BRICS experience online at www.usmle-rx.com. Complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends. 